Music is uh, an amazing thing when you think about it. So uh, simple, just seven little notes on a page. You have uh, obviously some sharps and some flats along the way, but basically just seven notes. You can learn those notes in just a couple of hours in an afternoon, maybe less than that. In that same amount of time, probably could learn how to bang out a little tune. You could teach a little child even to do it, to play a little song with those seven notes in just a few hours. But then you take those same seven notes and put them in the hands of a master like Handel or Bach, and in all of their lifetime, they couldn't exhaust the beauty that could be made from them. Led Bach to worship the Lord when he wrote his music. He would always put at the top his name and at the very bottom SDG, Sola Deo Gloria, because he was amazed as he was taken into rapturous praise at the beauty of the music. There's almost an infinite number of ways that you could render those notes into patterns and arrangements and stirs our spirits with exhilaration or takes us into the deepest of uh, solemnities and makes us feel at times a sense of triumph and at times a way to assuage our sorrow. We celebrate love with it. We mourn our losses with it. We tell stories with songs. We teach the alphabet with songs. We do all kinds of things with those seven simple little notes. Well, in the same way, you could boil Christianity down to a very simple concept. We would just call it love. Jesus says love is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. It is to love your neighbor and to love God. In fact, even in Romans 13, down in verse 8, Paul will tell us eventually, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love, that single, simple little component, that basic principle, Paul tells us, as Jesus had told us, it summarizes the Bible, it summarizes Christianity. But while we can speak about the Bible and while we can speak about Christianity in that basic, simple term, that doesn't mean that simply enunciating the term or saying the concept allows you to exhaust all of the complexities and the comprehensive nature of love. I mean, you could teach a song, a child to sing a simple song or simple tune, But you can't imagine that they will master Beethoven in just even a lifetime or even surpass him. And in many ways, people who come along and want to celebrate love as the defining principle of Christianity maybe have a naive imagination that simply stating it is the end of the story. It is the simple concept that... that binds all of Christianity together, but it goes so far beyond that, so far beyond that in practicing what love really looks like. It manifests itself in the law, it manifests itself in the prophets, it manifests itself in the scripture, 
It manifests itself, as Paul says, in any other commandment, in so many ways, in all the vast and complex and infinite ways in which we work out our lives, we are to be following this commandment of love. Now that helps us in our minds to be prepared for what we read in Romans chapter 12 today, the second half of this chapter, particularly beginning in verse 9, because as you read it, It sounds like a jumbled mishmash of exhortations and encouragement, but what it really is, is a list of many, many of the ways that love is supposed to be manifesting itself in our lives. It's an interesting section of Scripture because in these 13 verses, there is no main verb. There are very few verbs really at all. It's really just an assembly of participles and adjectives and nouns with just a few sporadic subordinate verbs along the way, but really no main verb governing the whole thing. You might say there is no 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 particularly particular explicit predicating idea in the grammar. It's impossible to diagram if you were to try to do so. But that doesn't mean these are just random thoughts all jumbled together because as, as you read it, as you ponder what Paul is saying, it's obvious what the central theme is throughout the section. It is love. And in fact, that is the opening words, as Paul says in verse 9, let love be genuine. Literally, unhypocritical love, or if you want to say it very explicitly, the unhypocritical love. That's what it says in the original text. No verb, it's just, just a statement. The unhypocritical love. And then he goes on from there to enunciate a number of things and ways and variations that this love looks like in all sorts of situations. Let me just read this text to you so you can hear what I'm talking about. He says in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who Who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought for what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This section is uh, translated in the English with many verbs, but there are really are no verbs in the section, no key verbs. Paul is just sort of giving a list of various virtues and, and attitudes, probably all, all going back to what is the main verb or the, what is the main idea in the entire chapter, which is back in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just like Paul had done in verses 3 through 8, he is telling us what this renewed mind produces within us. It's a life that is constantly reflecting on God's love and God's mercy. That's what he says in the opening verse, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. This is a life that is constantly reflecting on how merciful God has been to you. And because you are reflecting on that, you're presenting your body as a living sacrifice before God. And this life that is sacrificed before God, that is laid before God, is therefore testing everything so that it can discern what is acceptable behavior and what is not. It can prove what is the will of God, what is good and, and acceptable and honorable in the many and complex situations of life. That is the central idea. And this will works itself out in all of these ways, as Paul's already said, not thinking more highly of ourselves not placing ourselves on some exalted pedestal, but thinking rightly about ourselves with a proper amount of humility. And now he launches from that into this idea of love. Love in all of its various forms. Unhypocritical love. Unfolded for us in the ways that Paul spells them out here. It speaks about love manifested externally and internally. Manifested in our outward actions and in our internal attitudes. Manifested towards the body of Christ on the inside and the watching world on the outside. This is love on the inside and out. Love, in, in, like I said, in all of its variations or many of its variations. Comprehensive love. Love that helps us to understand that while the word and the concept itself might be simple, like a, like a few notes of music on a page, the challenge to live it out in the, very, uh, the varied areas of life is something that we will grow in for the rest of our days. Like a skilled musician wanting to become proficient at the most renowned piece of music. Now, as I said, this is a series of short, swift phrases presenting these attitudes and these virtues. But we're going to try, over the next couple of weeks, to think about them, maybe group them a little to help us apply them, frame them up in ways that would let us see how they work themselves out in our lives. And so we're going to do that with these attitudes and take a look at 15 of them, 15 we might say, ways or responses to God's mercy and love in our lives. Fifteen ways that we're going to try to build discernment about what God would want us to do in the way we respond to all the various things that are thrown at us. And many things are being thrown at you right now. There are many situations that you are in right now where you are not sure how to respond. You don't know what God's will is. You don't know how you should walk in a way that pleases Him. This this is for you. This is to help you to think through what is the will of God. How do I discern it in my life? 
15 responses to God's mercy and love in our lives. 15 things, we might say, that God's love demands of us. The first one in verse 9 is simply God's love, God's mercy demands that we be sincere. It demands that we be sincere. No hypocritical love. No fake love. Everyone's talking about fake news right now. The Bible says no fake love. No pretend love. No no, uh, putting on a, a form when the internal reality is absent. Paul uses a word here. He picks up the word hypocritical and, and puts the uh, negating particle on the front of it. So it's unhypocritical or literally in the Greek, anhypokritos, if you want to just sort of transliterate it. But ESV translates it as genuine, as authentic. In classical Greek, it was used to refer to actors on a stage who assumed a role, who put on a mask that was different from their real identity. A person who played a part, we might say, that wasn't true to who they really were. And so the idea here is, don't be an actor on a stage. Don't be pretending. Don't don't be, as it were, in the theater, putting on a show for an audience. Don't be theatrically pretending to be loving before a watching audience and giving the impression when you're really not. This is pretend love. And it's a mockery, really. It's a mockery of love. It's a mockery of the grace of our Savior. A mockery of God's love. It's putting on a mask of someone who has pondered long and deep at the foot of Christ. They've thought about God's grace and mercy in their life. They pondered how much they've been shown grace. And they've pondered how much they've been shown love from God. And now they're putting on a front of love to others, even though they do not have that humility in their hearts. They're hypocritical in their love. Absalom was like this. You remember David's son, Absalom? In 2 Samuel 15, we read in verse 2, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when a man had a dispute that would come before the king, Absalom would call him and say, From what city are you from? And he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. What's Absalom doing? He's walking in pride. He's suggesting that because of David's deficiencies, he's going to stoke the complaints of anyone he can find against the king and stir up discontentment in their hearts because of David's weaknesses. And completely missing his own, saying that if he were judged, he would be more perfect. And then what does he do? He turns around a few verses later and he goes in and he bows down to the king, pretending homage. Even says he wants to go worship the Lord and ask the king's blessing on him to go do such things. This is feigned love. This is feigned affection. It's hypocrisy. 
And then there was Joab. Joab, who had been removed from commanding the armies of Israel, found his replacement, Amasa. And he says to him, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard in his right hand and came up and kissed him. But Amasa did not observe the sword in Joab's other hand. And so Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled out his entrails to the ground. This is feigned love. Hypocritical love. And of course, who can forget Judas? Judas who met our Savior in the dark of night and kissed him. Kissed him. With a feigned pretense of love, all the while he was unfolding a plot behind him for the demise of Jesus. That kind of hypocritical love is odious to God. And you can imagine why. It's a facade. It's saying that you're loving when you're really not. It's an offense to God, pretending and plotting, showing or pretending like you have the interest of others when really what you have is your own interest at your heart. Trying to build your schemes or your kingdom or your whatever while only giving lip service to the love of others. Paul says we need to set aside all this kind of fake love. Set aside the love that is in speech only, but not in action. John says in 1 John chapter 3, this we know love, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, this is not from the Lord. Let us love in word and in deed. Excuse me, let us not love in word and in deed, but in in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Excuse me. Job is saying, look, this needs to be the way we love, not just with words. Not just with talk, but with real action behind it. John's saying there ought to be a a direct correlation between our understanding of what Christ did for us in laying down His life for us and then how we treat our brothers within the community of Christ. There shouldn't be superficiality, superficial hugs, Superficial handshakes, superficial words. Let love be genuine. That's someone who understands the mercies of God. Well, you have contemplated it. You've, you've understood it. You have seen how the Lord was loving to you. You understand it wasn't because of who you are. You understand it wasn't because of your perfection. You understand it wasn't because of your behavior. God loved you in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your faults. And so you turn around and you love others. You love them with the same unconditional love that Christ loved you with. You offer up genuine love because you've contemplated the love of Christ. You're being transformed out of the ways of the world and into the ways of Christ. And now you are discerning what the will of God is with all of your brothers and sisters. This is a response of 
of love to the mercy of God. Secondly, there's a second response that Paul calls us to. Second response to God's love and mercy in our lives. It demands, he says, that we be discerning. We must be discerning. That's what he says in the second half of the verse. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is a call for discernment. And coupled together so closely with the idea of love, it helps us to understand that even love itself is not mere emotion. Without any sort of direction, true love, genuine love, wouldn't lead you to do something that is evil or criminal or immoral. You can't use the excuse of love as some sort of covering for whatever vice, whatever deeds of the flesh, whatever indulgence that you might be pursuing. Because genuine worship is going to lead you not only to be genuinely loving, but also lead you to make discerning, or we might even say discriminating choices. It's going to lead you, in other words, to love some things and to hate others. That's what the word abhor means. It'll It'll be marked not only by what you love, but by what you hate. That is what genuine worship will lead you to. To have a a revulsion, to be repulsed by, to avoid what is evil. That concept is lost on the church today. In an age where tolerance is the supreme virtue, you are taught to tolerate everything. And the end result is that Christians are all around the, the country, all around the world maybe, are apathetic, they are lackadaisical, they are careless in their attitude towards everything and even towards evil. They abhor nothing except for those who exercise discernment. They're repulsed by nothing, they avoid nothing, and they end up just exposing themselves to all kinds of evil. You just... Exposed to all this stuff, you're desensitized to it, you are accepting of it, you're no longer repulsed by it, you no longer abhor it. And people do that in all kinds of ways. They do it with evil speech, they just learn to tolerate evil speech, they tolerate gossip, they tolerate slander, they tolerate hateful kinds of speech, they tolerate cursing, they don't abhor it, they don't stay away from it. Their avenue is to see how close they can get to it, how much they can mimic it. People do it with immorality, sexual immorality. They tolerate it. just becomes another part of their daily life, their daily existence. They're indifferent to it or they're entertained by it. Eventually, they're even gripped by it. People do it with false teaching. They'll go to places and sit under false teaching or they'll pick up a book and read it or they'll sit in a class and listen to it or they'll watch it on TV and there's no consideration of really what is right and what is wrong. They just expose themselves. This is the, this is the whole uh, uh, thesis behind modern education. Modern education has this idea that the way to educate someone is just expose them. Expose them to as much as you can, good, bad, whatever. Just give them all of the junk you can and then let them make their own decision about what they think and what they believe. That's virtue in their minds. There's no longer any sense of something being abhorrent, of something being evil, 
of something being hated, of running away from it, of shunning it. But the Scripture doesn't give us this freedom to expose ourselves. It doesn't give us this endorsement to just go see or listen to or entertain whatever we want. Its emphasis is on separation, on discrimination. Not in a racial sense, but in a moral sense. Discriminating between evil and good, between falsehood and truth, between what is destructive and harmful and working disaster in the lives of those people who are involved with it. We are to stay away from those things like we would a plague. And so we make these choices Choices between right and wrong, good and bad, between wheat and chaff, all in an effort to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from what is evil. It actually says abstain from every form of evil. It's interesting in Thessalonians because it's right in the context of teaching, right in the context of prophecy. He's actually saying that this isn't just about things you watch on TV or things you might read in a magazine. He's actually saying this is in the context of teaching. In teaching, you are to abhor that which is false, that which is evil. And yet we live in this non-discriminating culture that is just telling you you ought to be accepting, you ought to be tolerant about everything, you ought to just go along, otherwise you are an extremist, otherwise you are a dogmatist, otherwise you are a bigot. If you are rejecting anything. To our culture, there is no black and white, there is no right and wrong, there is no good and bad, there is no true and false. Everything is just this continual different shade of grayness. And you have to find your own comfort level. But the scripture wouldn't teach us that. This is the will of God. That you cling to what is good. And you abhor what is evil. In fact, and I don't know if you ever thought about this. But this is, this is the way the scripture is written. I mean, you go into the poetry sections of scripture and what do you have you have all this antithetical parallelism it's not this way it is this way or it is this way and it's not this way or even the whole levitical system and the whole system of the old testament law i don't know if you've ever thought about this but you have all of these laws about all of the things of life when it comes to farming when it comes to uh sort of uh, uh adjudicating things but even when it goes beyond that to dietary laws when it goes to uh holidays even down to your clothing you're not supposed to make a piece of clothing by sewing together two different kinds of cloth why is that there is no reason People have searched it out and asked questions. There is no rationale behind it other than this conclusion that God simply wanted to train people so that every day in everything they do, they're constantly forced to think discriminatingly. Is this pleasing to the Lord or not? And make the choice of what is pleasing to God. To constantly be developing, we might say, this antithetical kind of thinking. Not looking for ways to integrate your 
faith into the world, but looking for ways to distinguish what is good from what is evil and to cling to what is good. To separate, just as we reject that which is abhorrent. Thirdly, third response of God's mercy and love in our lives, God's mercy and love demands that we be family. It demands that we be family. Not only that we have this unhypocritical love, not only that we have this discernment we're developing, but as Paul says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So genuine worship is going to lead you to love one another as brothers and sisters, a family kind of love. In fact, Paul uses two words here. He uses the word, first of all, philostorgos, which is a word that speaks about a deep and and tender love like a parent would have for their child. And he combines it with the word philadelphia, which is the word for brotherly love. So two words that come straight out of family life. And you combine that with really what we read in the rest of Scripture, where over and over again, we're called by the biblical writers, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. All over, this family language is applied to the Scripture. And so we understand when Paul comes and says this, he's telling us to, within the community of the church, to love one another as we would love family. And it's not just talking about a warmth of emotion. That may be there at times. It may not be. You can ask my sons. You can ask my daughters. Sometimes there are warm times. Sometimes there are not. This isn't warmth of emotion. This is devotion. This is devotion. This is the essence of family love. When we love one another as a family, we're not just describing a feeling that we have towards one another. That certainly comes. Families have that, and those are some of the joys that the Lord gives us. But the essence of family relationships is that even when that is absent, the essence of brotherly love is a love of devotion to one another. Commitment. Of course, we know in the realities of life that friction comes in families. Brothers at times may fight. They may squabble. They will hurt one another. They will disappoint one another. They're not perfect. Not by any stretch. They grow up in all of the imperfections of what family life brings. But what this means is that through all the pain, through all the disappointment, through all of the sadness, when all is said and done, you don't abandon one another as brothers and sisters. This is the essence of family. You're born into it. You didn't choose it. But once you're there, you're there. There are times of sweetness. There are times... Of conflict. There are times of sadness. There are times of loss. We'll wrestle through the selfishness that families show to one another. We'll wrestle through the sin. That's why it is sometimes difficult 
in families. But we live together, we stay together, we grow through the pain together, we mature together. I think when people talk about these days church is the family of God and they join arms and they sing the songs about the family of God, they don't always think about what they're saying. There's, they're probably saying that or probably singing that and they have some make-believe idea about a family they see in a book or on a TV show or something like that. They idealize family where there is no pain, where there is no heartache. But that's not the way family happens in real life, is it? Real families hurt. Real families have heartache. Real families have frustrations with one another. Real families experience victories and they experience sorrows. Real families have triumphs and they have setbacks. Real families experience all of it together and they stick together through it. And the reason they do it is brotherly love. Brotherly love. You're probably like most people in your home. You've experienced that. There are times when you're taken up with sweetness of fellowship and you have those memorable moments, maybe holidays, maybe regular evenings together with family and you cherish those. But if you're honest, you also recognize there are times when it's not so easy. There are times when you do not like each other very much. But you can't confuse like with love. Liking may come and go, but love, brotherly love, stands. I mean, we all have our moments, but because you're a family, you are committed to one another, you stay together, you go through all this together as a family, you grow together, and through it all, thankfully, at least in my family, no one has left. If we did, we'd be worse for it. If we did, then we would miss out on what God wants to do through us. Joseph Hellerman writes about the value of families. He says in his book, When the Church Was a Family, he says, quote, It's in the context of our families that we grow up and hone the relational skills necessary to interact as mature adults with the people in the world around us. As our therapists know so very well, people who leave their families due to conflict often take their dysfunctional relational strategies and behaviors to another family where, surprise, surprise, they encounter all over again the very issue that they thought they had left behind. The same dynamics characterize life together in our church families. Yet church culture in America tends to discourage rather than encourage ongoing loyalty and commitment to local to a local family of believers. End quote. People don't view their church like that anymore, unfortunately. They view their church like a shopping mall. They go and they pick and they choose what pleases them until they're tired of it, and then they, they think that they can go home instead of seeing this as your home. Or we want to follow some new fad or some new trend, and so they abandon their church and they go seeking after something else. Or they have a dust-up and they have a disappointment and they run down the road because they can't, they can't bring themselves to grapple with the weaknesses of one another. Well, Paul's saying you should no sooner abandon your church family than you would your real family if you have brotherly love. We ought to show brotherly love. We ought to demonstrate it. Not just saying the words but living the actions. 
devoted to one another. This is a this is brotherly love at its core. A commitment, not always a warmth of feeling, but a humility to understand the tolerance and the grace that people show to you and that you turn around and show to others. Now Paul combines this with a call, this brotherly love, with a call or a command to outdo one another in showing honor. Or as the New American Standard says, give preference to one another in honor. The main idea of this participle is to go beyond some level or to do something exceedingly or in an exceptional way. And so you either have this idea uh, of uh, the action of honor that is to be exceptional, you're outdoing one another, or the object of your honor is exceptional, you're showing honor beyond yourself or beyond or exceeding yourself. I suppose either way, it's the same idea. It's the same idea of Philippians chapter 2, right? When Paul says we're to be of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, and then he explains what this is. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. In other words, he says, look, you need to be unified, you need to be one, you need to be of the same mind. And what does that mean? That means that you lay aside your interest. All the quarreling and haggling and hassling and arguing, all the focus on your personal glory, all the vanity, all the conceit, all the, all the self-promotion, all the egotism that drives personal desire, it's destructive, it's disruptive, it is the stuff from which disunity comes. You can't have this singleness of mind, he says, if that's there, so you need to lay it aside. It disrupts what God wants within the church. Instead of all that, Paul says, put on humility. A humility that would consider the interest of others more than your own. Unity flows from that kind of humility. It is the definition, really, of that unity. And it's the definition of what Paul's talking about here, even with brotherly love. This humility, this term, that is such a virtue in the Old Testament of considering others ahead of yourself. It wasn't a virtue before the New Testament was written. In fact, it's a word. The word humility that we read so often about in the New Testament was a word of derision before the New Testament was written. It was a word that was used to describe the slaves, their low position, their place of being unfit or useless or valueless or just simply base. And the scriptures pick it up or the New Testament writers pick it up and apply it to us in the sense of a virtue. And Paul's saying, have this attitude about yourself, seeing your value as lower, your place as useless, your condition as less fit, that, that you then esteem others as more significant than yourself. You no longer look only for your own interest, but for the interest of others. Now you are, you are encompassed with their goals, with their tasks, with their gifts, with their needs, with their ministries, with their qualities, with their strengths, all more than your own. 
And so here in Romans chapter 12, I think Paul's making the same point. We are to show the kind of honor to others that exceeds our own. It outstrips our own. We're to place their honor above our honor. We're to follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul says there in Philippians 2, although he had a position in equality with God, he emptied himself from that position. And we're to show honor to others beyond ourselves. Let their honor exceed ours. Outdo them in how you deflect honor away from yourself and toward them. This is the biblical command. This is someone who understands the mercy of God. This is a person who has spent time in genuine worship. This is a person whose love is unhypocritical. The kind of love that shows you comprehend God's mercy, that you're getting it, that you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, that you're being transformed out of the world's mold that you're being renewed to where you finally begin understanding this is the will of God. Holy, acceptable, good. Well, there's 15. That's only three. We'll get to the others, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, these are uh, meaningful words to us, needful words for us. Those of us who are so prone to think exalted views of ourselves, Those of us who spend far too much time defending our own honor rather than deflecting. Far too much time pretending when we ought to be genuine. Lord, hear our confession this morning. Grant us your grace in repentance. Grant us your spirit in renewal. That you would make us into the kind of family. The family of God. That your scripture calls us to be. Help us to love with brotherly love. To love one another with the love of Christ. Every commandment, every law, everything we would want to discern about the will of God is fulfilled in that. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to live it out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.